Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Happy Mother's Day. All right, let's say it again. For the people in the back, happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you guys. It's great to be with you. Uh, you've proven once again that y'all make good-looking babies. So way to go. Um, I really offended the 9 o'clock service by suggesting that sometimes you don't know what to say because the baby is funny-looking. You know? But I've said, thankfully, here, I've never had to say that, especially not on baby dedicated, that awkward moment where it's like, <laughs> you did it, you know? <laughs> you guys make really good-looking babies, and I'm just thankful for that. Saves me a lot of awkward conversations. Uh, we're... Uh, so good job is all I'm saying. Way to go. Keep having babies. You're doing great. Um, we're in the middle of a series on uh, the book of Jonah. And if you were here last week, if, you, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're excited you're here. Uh, our church isn't normally, the entrance isn't normally a creepy, dusty, dark hallway with no electricity. Uh, you don't usually need to have a, like a land navigation map and a headlamp and, you know, hard hat. Uh, we're building adult-sized bathrooms so that if you sh choose to come back, some of you adults, if you choose to come back, you'll be able to use the restroom here. Um, just, yeah. I'm glad one person's like, maybe one day I'll use the bathroom. So uh, thanks for bearing with us. Um, yeah, it's a little uh, messy, maybe is the right word. Walls are coming down like the walls of Jericho. Uh, and so it's exciting. Thanks for bearing with us with that. Uh, we usually preach through a book of the Bible. Um, if you were here last week, we talked about Jonah, and uh, we left Jonah. We're at that awesome part in the story where the fish pukes Jonah up, and he's laying there on the side of the beach covered in fish vomit. And I didn't think that was maybe necessarily the best image to start off with Mother's Day, you know? So we're going to take it. We're going to leave Jonah on the shore covered in the fish stuff. And if you're really curious what happens, Come back next week, because we'll be right back at it. Uh, today, we're going to just take a step back and talk about mom. Um, I'm personally a little bit partial to mothers. Wouldn't be here without my mom. Um, if you think about it, you know, that applies to you too. Uh, just go think about that for a second. And uh, one of the great joys of my life has um, been watching my wife become a mother. And, you know, one of the things I've learned, I haven't learned much about being a mom, you know, um, I am the other part of that equation. Uh, but uh, it's shocking to me uh, how demanding and difficult the task of being a mom is, and yet how incredibly ordinary and everyday, and I guess just downright thankless it is. Um, I can remember when we had our first child, and by we, I mean my wife, you know what I mean? Because I'm standing there trying not to pass out and trying to look kind of cool. And she's doing all the work, her and the, her and the doctors and the whole team of people. And your whole life changes, right? Like, boom, human being pops out. And, and then you find out that like 20 other people at the same time had a baby too. And it's like, well, maybe it's, it's crazy and it's incredibly normal at the same time. And then they wheel your wife out to the parking lot and then they just say, go get them. You know, like... <laughs> Good luck. There's no manual they give you. They just let you take the child home, and everyone assumes it'll be fine, and you'll just survive. Uh, they do, at least at our hospital, they made us watch a video about not shaking your child, and I was like, what kind of idiot would shake their child? I thought it was so offensive and ridiculous. And then our kid didn't sleep, like, the first three years of his life. Um, he's three now. Uh, 
and like week three, I was like, I get why they have you watch the video, you know? I get it. And some of you people without kids are like, I can't believe you. It's like, just wait, just wait. So all that to say, uh, we're going to talk to moms this morning, and I've got two goals. Uh, first is to encourage our moms. I think this story has a lot to say, uh, not just about surviving as a mom or how to make it through, but hopefully uh, to help you become more present to what the Lord is doing in some of life's most challenging tasks, one of the most demanding callings God can give somebody. And then second is to encourage those of us who know a mom, which again, think, just go think about that. I'm trying to cover everybody today. I think I'm going to get you. Um, so what we're going to look at is uh, the story of this woman named Hannah, who's the mother of the prophet Samuel, which, um, boy, a lot of roads in the Bible run through this woman and her son. And so if you're not familiar with her, I, I encourage you, you can read about her life and her son's life in First and Second Samuel, the book named after him. And uh, the, the time period of this story is the book of Judges, which we talked about a little while ago. You can go back and check that out. In short, if you want to know what, what was the time of the Judges like for the people of God, it was basically a mess. Uh, everybody was doing awful stuff more or less all of the time. That's a paraphrase of one of the nastiest books of the Bible. Uh, it was lots of wickedness, lots of despair, lots of rebellion. And then tucked in there, we have this woman and her beautiful faith, this, this woman named Hannah. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel, though, it doesn't, um, you know, there's, there's not much warm-up in some of the books of the Bible. They just kind of dive in and get right after it. And 1 Samuel is like that. It, it just jumps right in and shows how Hannah's life, though she's held up as the, I mean, she's a, a hero of the Bible. Uh, she's got this incredible faith that's on display, but her life totally starts on a minor key. And 1 Samuel doesn't give you any preamble, any warm-up. It just dives right in. And so you get Listen to this now. Verses 1 and 2, 1 Samuel. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. So first off, this is like a little side sermon. Just go take this with you to talk to your friends at the water cooler at work. Because there's a whole bunch of people that don't read the Bible but are Bible experts. And you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, the Bible encourages polygamy. Or all kinds of people in the Bible had multiple wives. Yeah, the, all kinds of people in the Bible had multiple wives. What you will not find in the Bible is, you know, Jimmy had a thousand wives, really enjoyed it, and it went well for him. <laughs> you will never see that. So does the Bible mention polygamy? Yeah. And it never, ever goes well. It is always a problem. Um, it, it just isn't that. So... Hannah begins her story. She's in a love triangle. Some of you, you know, if you're married, you know one is more or less enough, right? Like one is enough problems. You compound that. And it's like, you can just imagine the, the tension that that could create. But there's something even worse going on. It, it said that she's, she can't have any children. Um, now, on a day like Mother's Day, especially when we've got all these beautiful babies, and so I kind of, if we have a third kid, uh, our baby dedication picture is going to be him, like, running around naked with food all over his face. It's like a monster. Because all these pictures, you know, it's like the beautiful pictures with the photographer. And I don't know how you people get your kids to look like that and those poses and all that stuff. But, like, it's beautiful. And there's celebrations and guests are coming. It's a full house, right? Like, it's, it's a beautiful day filled with lots of celebration. But there. There's a lot of people that Mother's Day is a miserable day. 
And baby dedication Sundays are really tough days. There's a lot of women in our church that know the pain of infertility uh, or just that waiting for the Lord to provide a child. And it's, it's a pain that's really difficult for those of us who aren't in it to understand or relate to. I mean, there, there's, there's monthly disappointments, right? You're waiting for this test every month and then that monthly disappointment. Uh, we, we never have a problem Find, we've never had to delay a child dedication for lack of children in our church. There, there are babies being born all the time. Thanks be to God. It's a blessing and it's a gift. But that also means there's a lot of folks who are getting invited to baby showers all the time. And, and some of these ladies are, are waiting on the Lord to provide a child while they're getting these invitations. And so you got to put the fake smiles on. You know, you got to go out and buy another outfit that you wish you were buying for your own child. I mean, the, the questions, the, the ever-present pain, I mean, for my friends and folks we've talked to in the church, the smallest of things can bring overwhelming pain. Um, and this is a church that I feel like handles that stuff. We're doing okay, I feel like. I don't think we're total failures, but we're doing okay, and it, it can still be an oppressive weight for our ladies to bear. And, and look at... L- Listen to the other, the other part of this love triangle, how Penina is compounding the problem that Hannah is dealing with, this pain that she's dealing with, waiting for the Lord to provide a child. So verses 6 and 7 say, Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. So in a church where we try to be open about our pain and we we try to be honest about it and welcoming about it, it's still incredibly difficult. And can you imagine sharing your husband with another woman who year after year was taunting you and teasing you and making fun of you? When when it says they would go to tabernacle, it's not quite a perfect analogy, but essentially it's like this is them going to church. And so you got Hannah in the front seat, Penina in the back seat with, you know, they got a Honda Odyssey because they got some money. And they're back there, and Penina is just saying, you know, Hannah, are you going to buckle your kit? Oh, my bad. You know, like just the little jokes, taunting over and over and over. Can you even imagine? The story tells us that when Elkanah would go sacrifice to God, uh, he would bring meat home for the family. He would save the best parts for Hannah. Um, there's a sense that he loved Hannah more than Penina. He was his favorite wife. I'd be kind of like, you know, after church, you've got the grill or the backyard cookout, and dad brings top sirloin for everybody, but then for his wife, he, he gives her some filet, you know? Um, and this is about the best he can do. The story, it seems like he gets to some kind of breaking point, though. So just try to imagine, you're driving home from church, and one wife is making fun of the other wife. You try to you know, help her out by giving her some steak. And she essentially can't eat. She's crying. She goes home, flops down in bed, and is just a mess. And then the other woman is kind of peacocking around the house, feeling all good about herself. And so Elkanah kind of has a a breaking point. And he looks at Hannah at one point, and he says to her, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? He's essentially saying to her, aren't I enough for you? Aren't I enough for you, baby? This is her life. 
Her husband's trying to fix her. Another woman is taunting her, and still she's waiting on the Lord to provide for her. She reaches a breaking point of her own of sorts. She heads to the tabernacle. It says in verse 9, Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. So this is not the kind of praying that most of us here in southern Indiana pray. I like standing in the back of the church sometime because it shows, us, it shows me the kind of church we are sometimes. And most of us are very this, you know, like standing still. And how do you pray? I, we never taught my kid how to pray. And just one day he showed up and said, hey, guys, let's pray. And he went, hmm, hmm. You know, you fold your hands and you go down and you're very quiet, right? That's how you pray when you're white and middle class. Very quiet. So this is not how she is praying here. You see the words. First it said she was in deep anguish. Uh, it's an interesting word. So I just went straight to the, the, the plain definition of what this word means, the word that we tr- that's translated here, deep anguish. And it, it means severe mental or physical pain and suffering. Severe mental or physical pain and suffering. This is a broken woman. You can... I can't imagine what it's like, uh, but we can get an idea of the day in and day out struggle and anguish she's facing. And she comes with, I mean, she's broken when she comes. And it says that she's crying. And this word means weeping or wailing. It, it has the connotations of the sound that she's making when she's crying. So this isn't like, you know, just one gentle tear rolls down her cheek as she has a somber moment of reflection in the prayer chapel. She is weeping and wailing. And it says, third, she's crying bitterly. She's resentful. She's angry. She's in such a state. If you read the story, Eli the priest tries to throw her out. He accuses her of being drunk. So (laughs) for you, just try to imagine, what would you have to be praying like for the pastor or priest or whoever at the church to mistake you for being a drunk person? I'm sobbing, hollering, screaming, almost incoherent babbling. And again, this is describing the way she is praying. This is how she's praying to God. So now listen to what she's praying, the actual words that we have recorded here. She says, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he's been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. In some ways, it's profoundly anticlimactic, this first chapter, uh, and Hannah's pain and anguish. And if you read it quick, it can be terribly confusing, at least to me. It leaves you wondering, what do we do with this? If you, it's a pretty famous story. Uh, and so I'll, spoiler alert, if you're going to go home and read it, plug your ears, I'm about to tell you what's happened. Here's a clue. The book is called First Samuel, right? Like, it's not called First Hannah. Uh, she gets pregnant shortly after this and has a baby. And there's some traditions that will say, see, look, you just got to speak a word of victory. You just got to claim it, and the Lord will give it to you, and then you'll be happy, right? 
Well, whatever you're sad about, whatever's lacking, just pray for it and God will give it to you and then you can be happy. Is that what we should make of this story? Is that what's going on? Well, I'm gonna talk about it, but for those who are about to zone out, no, that is not what this story is about. That's lazy, well, it's not even lazy. That's just bad Bible reading. And I'm gonna show you how here in just a second. So I wanna take a step back out of the story for a second. And I, I think there's some, some movements that, that we can see here. They apply to all of us, but I think they certainly apply to our moms. And they, they make sense of what the Lord is kind of leading Hannah through to get her to this point of something really profound happening when she's praying here. So the, my first encouragement, the first thing that I, I want us to see is how Hannah avoids the trap of comparison. Uh, notice that she doesn't pray here or we don't get any conversation that she has afterwards uh, after any of these like church gatherings where she says, you know, like, oh Lord, if I could only be like Penina. Or when those times where she's a, a, a weeping mess and can't eat, she doesn't lock herself in her room and go to Penina's Facebook page and scroll through all Penina's pictures with her kids. You know what I'm saying? She's like, well, she didn't have Facebook. I know, but she wouldn't have done it anyway. You know what I'm saying? You don't know what I'm saying. I thought that would have gotten a chuckle or something. <laughs> Stick to your notes. Here's the point that I want you to consider that we don't see happen with Hannah. So if you're a mom, how much time do you spend comparing yourself or your children to other moms or other children? Mom, how much time do you compare yourself to other moms? Sometimes it's real subtle. And it'll be just things like, I wonder how she lost all that baby weight. And that sounds innocent enough. Um, other times it's not so subtle. Uh, we've had some mild breakdowns, my wife and I, uh, looking at Facebook and seeing some of you people have the audacity to post pictures of three children sitting at a dining room table, eating at the same time. And I know it's not real because there's always like a Bible perfectly positioned you know, right, right in the middle. Because listen, when mealtime at our house, I don't know why, but it, it basically requires riot gear and like a, a hazmat crew afterwards. My children, for every one third of their food that goes in their mouth, a third goes on the floor, another third goes on the wall. And when we see you people with your perfect children and no food goes anywhere but their mouths, it, like, it's like, what are we doing wrong? You know, it's terribly crushing. Uh, some of you are churched up paninas. Uh, what, what do you mean by churched up? You do stuff that sounds good, but it's incredibly cruel, and it throws our women right into the trap of comparison. Some of us step into it on our own. Some of you throw people into it, like how Panina is constantly taunting and teasing Hannah. Some of us do this, and I don't know if you know you're doing it. Um, I had a bunch of like I'm gonna get them on this, examples. And then I felt like it was kind of mean. So here's the gentlest way I could put it. And hopefully you can make some sense of it or you moms can go talk about it. Here's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Say you've got, you're having a, a coffee with your friend and you're meeting up and it's like 11 o'clock in the morning, right? It's not early, you know, you've had some time and your friend shows up and her shirt is on backwards and she's got like lipstick on for eyeliner two different shoes, you can tell she's not right. You know what I'm saying? But then is not the time to say, hey, have you tried this new book on how to make your kids fall asleep at night? This is what my husband and I used. 
You just see what I'm saying? Here's the, here's the tip. Advice is typically not helpful when it's not asked for. Um, is that always true? Not always true. Am I saying you should never give advice unless someone asks you for it? And that's not what I'm saying. But if you, some of you people, and by you people I mean us people, uh, some of us are very convinced that we know exactly the way to do it, and we know exactly what's wrong with the way you're doing it, and you know the Spirit of God has compelled us to tell everyone what to do in every situation all the time. And I want to strongly encourage you, if you find in yourself the desire to give someone advice that they haven't asked for it, just check yourself. Ask the Lord, bring it to the Lord, ask him, should I do this? Ask a friend, does this seem like a good idea? Because in lots of ways, we end up just throwing people right back in to the comparison trap. I, I almost, I'm not gonna say what I almost did. I almost did something that professional Christians shouldn't do when after several sleepless nights, I had uh, uh, a person I love deeply come up to me and say, well, have you tried this to get your child to sleep through the night? And it was like, we've done everything, you know? And here's my point. Does it say, like, should you never talk to friends? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Some of you have really difficult kids. And what do I mean by difficult? They're just fussy, right? Like, they don't eat or they don't sleep or whatever. Some of you have really hard kids, and it's not your fault, okay? It's not your fault. Those are the children the Lord has given to you in his wisdom. Some of you have really easy kids, and it's not your fault either. You see what I mean? In the, in the church world, we call that a blessing. And sometimes you get him, and sometimes you don't. Our, my son did not sleep at all, and he still really doesn't much. But you know what all, all of our friends said? Well, if your first kid doesn't sleep, you know what that means? The second one, there's going to be no problem. They're going to sleep a lot. And they lied to us. <laughs> they lied to us because the second one sleeps even worse. She does better now. But here, here's, here's my point. What I'm trying to say is, the Lord has given each of us a, a unique life and a unique story to live, a unique set of children to live, a unique script to live out. And the Bible has a word for the comparison trap. It calls it coveting. And when we flare up in people this desire of their own inadequacy or that they should be doing something different, we throw them into this trap of coveting, which kills us, it kills them, and it steals the joy that we have of enjoying and being grateful for the real life, the real children, the real story that God has given me to live. My story is not your story. Should we talk to one another about it? Should we get advice? All that stuff? Yes, absolutely. But it should be done from a place of gratitude for this is the life God has given me. Avoid the comparison trap. There's another encouragement here. This is mostly for the people around the moms. Um, and yeah, don't personalize her pain. Uh, so what do you mean? Well, think back to Elkanah's response to Hannah's tears. He essentially says, aren't I enough for you? Which sounds so like, it sounds like Jerry Maguire-ish to me. You know, like, you complete me. Or, why do you need this? We have something so magical. You know, it sounds kind of romantic. There's something that's kind of like, man, wouldn't it be nice if he were enough for me? I just want to be enough for you, baby. Why do you need more? And there's something that sounds kind of sweet about it. Uh, I'm going to talk about why it's not sweet in just a second. But think about what this is communicating to Hannah. 
Most people I know, and, and I would say especially, especially men, have an exceedingly hard time dealing with pain. Uh, and so we want to rationalize it, like so have an explanation for it. Well, here's why you're sad. And what, what happens after the explanation? Well, then there's the solution. Here's why you're so sad. And now here's why, or here's what you can do to stop being so sad. And essentially what we're trying to say is quit it, right? Like stop being this way because I don't like you when you are this way. I don't like being around a woman that's crying and won't eat. I don't like when she's slamming doors and making my life hard and dramatic or, or whatever. It is impossible to experience deep transformation apart from pain. If you're expecting deep change in the Christian life without any pain, you will be waiting a long, long time. Uh, take a moment and just think of somebody that you know who's in their 50s or 60s, and they look like Jesus to you. Or This is the kind of person that I want to be like. I hope to become like them someday. And go talk to them. How did you become this way? How did you end up this way? They, no one gets there apart from deep pain and being able to face it, endure it, and be transformed by it. You will not change, experience deep transformation into Christ-likeness apart from pain. And what's more, I have yet to meet a mother who is not acquainted with real pain. I don't, I don't think you can be a mom without learning how to endure pain. Maybe it's Hannah's pain, the dealing with infertility. Maybe it's pain like what I mean, Kristen so courageously shared about losing your child. Maybe it's, you know, things that we have a hard time talking about in the church, like postpartum depression or learning how to live without sleep. We, we've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. I don't think my wife has slept eight hours in a row, more than two nights in a row in like four years. And for me, I'm like, I don't know how you live through that. And all the moms are like, yeah, you know. Think about that, dudes. And some of you guys that are like, oh, that's whatever. I'm not even going to say it. But like, think about that for a second. Maybe that's the pain that they're called to endure. I can remember saying to an older couple one time, um, you know, like, I just think parenting will be so much easier once we can start sleeping again. And they were parents of grown kids. And uh, I remember the mom looked at me and she said, oh, sweetie, you never sleep again. <laughs> you, you just lose sleep for different reasons when they're older. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe it's watching your kid in college and lying awake at night wondering, are they making good decisions? Uh, maybe it's watching your child endure a really hard marriage, and there's not much that you can do about it. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, when we try to fix pain, we're essentially telling a person, I don't want you, uh, or I only want you at your best. And what's more, we perpetuate a lie that is so pervasive in our culture that says a godly life is an easy life. Um, or if there's pain in your life, you've done something wrong or God is upset with you. Hidden in all of our pain are the seeds of redemption and transformation. And it's weak and faithless people that take someone else's pain personally. Sometimes a wife will be hurting and it will be your fault, husband or friend. Sometimes. But far too many of us assume that it's our fault. Or we want to say, like, Elkanah, this is something about me. I want to take your pain, and I want to make it about me. He was so much closer to being on the right track when he brought her a steak. And that's not because steak will fix it. What's he doing? He's saying, like, baby, I love you. 
I'm thinking about you. I want to show you I care about you. Bring her whatever she likes and sit with her. The best friends in the scriptures are the ones who show up when it's hard and shut up because it's hard. What do they do? They sit down and they sit with you. They don't call and say, hey, I was just wondering if we could swing by. I know you're going through a tough time. They just get there. They're there. And they show up. Learn to be with her, to sit with her, to draw near. And you don't have to fix it. You don't have to have a solution. At times, yeah, speak truth. At times, yes, correct. But often, often to just simply listen and understand. Now, why is this? Is this my idea? Watch what friends do in the scriptures. And the friends that are celebrated, the friends that do well, are always the friends that show up and shut up. The, the ones who are there and present and listen. Why? Well, I believe the fundamental invitation of the Christian life is to be transformed through trust. This is what it all, all boils down to. And here's, so here's, here's how this plays out in the story and, and what it has to do with friendship. So some of you come from a home where emotions were not allowed. Uh, by a show of shaking your head who grew up in a home where emotions weren't allowed. You know, like, oh boy, some of you, you just can't do it, right? Like, oh no, Hannah's upset. Why don't you go to your room until you settle down? You know, uh, Hannah's in a mood. She's being emotional. I've got a friend where it's like, oh, he's being emotional. Go to your room until you settle down. You can't, you're not allowed to be emotional here. Some of you grew up in churches that threw verses on this kind of a position. Uh, so things like, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things, which means if you ever feel emotional, don't trust it, don't listen to it, cut it off. So the best thing any of us could be are emotionless creatures, right? Where we just float through life. I don't know. I don't know. Emotionless. No opinions, no feelings. On the other side of the spectrum, some of you had emotionally ruled families where you vented a lot, and venting meant that's when you can throw things and cuss each other out, and then afterwards say, like, I was just venting, right? Or, like, we just had to process it. Or from emotional churches, which meant that at some point, inevitably in the service, usually around the third chorus of the second song, when they're really building up, that's when you could run a lap, and that's when you could, like, flop around on the ground up front, which is it nowhere in the Bible, right? Like, and you can just do whatever you want. So which one is it? And we get confused. Look at what Hannah does here. So on the one hand, she doesn't hide her emotions one bit. She brings them to God. Hurt, angry, resentful, weeping. Some people are like, no, 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 you are not allowed to be angry with God. You cannot be angry. It's a sin to be angry with God. To which I say, well, you're going to have a hard time with huge chunks of the Old Testament, including the entire book of Psalms. Is it appropriate to feel anger towards God. I mean, I don't know. All I know is that over and over and over in the Bible, people who are angry at God bring their anger to God and they don't get struck down by lightning bolts. I'm not saying God's like, man, I'm so happy and pleased with you for being angry at me. But he is saying, I know you're angry at me, so come to me. Let's Talk about it. He is a good dad who can handle you even when how you are is unreasonable. So she doesn't hide her emotions. Uh, she's in such a state that a priest thinks she's drunk, okay? She is frazzled. Pick your word. She's intense, angry, bitter. She doesn't hide her emotions, but she isn't ruled by them either. You notice how her prayer starts? Oh, Lord of heaven's armies. 
It's a confession that God is God. It's an acknowledgement of his power. It's an acknowledgement of his control. It's, it's a posture of trust. She's coming to him. She's making a confession about his character and his nature and his promises. She pleads to be heard and remembered. So on the one hand, she's honestly bringing all she is to God. And on the other, she's holding on to his character and his promises. This is the tension of the Christian life that we can come as we are before God, but we must do so fighting to hold on to who God is and what he's promised to do and who he's promised to be for us. What happened when she did this? Before, she couldn't eat. She's weeping. Then it says she went away, ate, and was no longer sad. And what I think is perhaps the most crucial part to read in this story and you got to be reading a little bit slow to see it, is that she was no longer sad. She became satisfied. She was happy before her prayer was answered. you you got to see that. She brings herself to the Lord, and she leaves his presence satisfied and happy before her prayer for a child has ever been answered. It's lazy and bad Bible reading to say, well, what... What this teaches us is just pray for what you want and God will give it to you and then you can be happy. Hannah was changed and transformed before her prayer was answered. Listen to me. Sometimes God will change your circumstances. Sometimes he'll give you the child you've been praying for, the job you've been praying for, the fill in the blank you've been asking for. Sometimes he will change your circumstances, but that is not the guarantee of the Christian life. That is not the promise that God makes you. What is promised is that if you come to God when you bring yourself to him, every time he will transform you. God is far more interested in you than in your circumstances. Watch what happens with Hannah. She promised that, he, that this boy would be a Nazarite, which some of us are like, oh, well, that's cute. He'll go to private school, right? Like, oh, well, that sounds neat. And he won't get haircuts. He'll be like one of those wild men. Uh, to be a Nazarite meant that she would nurse the child. And then once he was weaned, he would be handed over to priests and he would be raised by priests. She was essentially giving him up for adoption. She was sending him off to a Christian school where he never comes home again. She was giving her son away. So when other moms are going out on play dates, Hannah is saying, my son is a Nazarite and I I do not raise him anymore. He is not mine. This suffering and these years of pain and she changes from give me a child to her prayer now becomes give me a child so I can give him back to you. She's changed. If you read the Bible, you'll see that God does not call heroes. He, he calls the lost, the weak, the broken. Women like Hannah who come before him a mess. And then he transforms them. He changes them. He brings strength through weakness, healing through suffering, life through death. When we bring our pain to God, unfiltered and honest, fighting to trust his character, it lifts our eyes up. And when we see high above them, when they come up off our circumstances, we see a God, a God that the scriptures say is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. A man who endured a death that he did not deserve. A man who was betrayed by those closest to him. A man who felt the sting of loss, of loneliness, of rejection. 
There is no pain that we have endured or experienced that God and Jesus Christ is not well acquainted with. He is one who's familiar with our weaknesses, who's been tempted in every way and yet remained without sin. He is a man who knows our pain and has carried them. He has borne our weaknesses. Why? All so that we could see that God loves us, that we can come to him as we are. What satisfied Hannah? It's not unique to Hannah. It is the story of the Bible. What satisfies people is the presence of God, a fresh encounter with the presence of God of God. It allowed her prayer to shift. Give me a child, to give me a child so I can give him to you. What's wrong with Elkanah's complaint? Why aren't you enough for her? Because you're not enough for her. A child will never be enough for you. A husband will never be enough for you. A job will never be enough for you. But God can be enough for you. What the human soul needs more than anything else is the presence of God. The presence of God satisfies the soul in ways that changed circumstances never will. And the degree to which you are willing to believe that is the degree to which you will experience a satisfying life with God. Listen to Jesus' final words on earth. He says to his disciples, I am with you always. Five words. I am with you always. If this is true, if he is good, then may we be like Hannah. We don't have to go to the tabernacle. We have Christ who is with us always, and we can come to him as we are, but with open hands. I think the the desire of God for each of us is to look at him. Look to the cross and see that your guilt has been cleansed. Look to the resurrection to see that your suffering will not get the last word. You will be raised to new life. Look to Christ seated on the throne room of heaven to say he's in control. Look to all of that as evidence of his love for you. And the fundamental response is for us to look to him and say, I trust you. I trust you. It will not make sense to us all the time. Uh, we don't get a promise that he'll explain it all or sort it all out for us. But we see this and look to him and say, I trust you with my future. I trust you with my children. We trust you with these dedicated little ones. We trust you with our church. We trust you with our jobs. We trust you with our marriages. We trust you. We trust you. And as we trust him, he will transform us. He may not change our circumstances. Maybe he will. But the promise is each and every time he will change us. And so we come to him now because we are weak. We don't put up a mask. We come weak because that is what we are. And, and if you can't do that, then maybe you're not ready to come to him. What I'm thankful about this church is we, I assume that if you're here, you have some degree of awareness that you're a mess and your life is a mess. And for the people who get paid to run this church and the pastors who oversee it, that is not a surprise to any of us. That doesn't bother us. That doesn't hurt any of our feelings. There's freedom to come weak because that is what we are. We enter into each other's suffering because that is what Christ has done for us. We fix our eyes on him because he is what we need. And so we come to communion every week to remember how our souls are satisfied and to remind ourselves why we can trust him. Jesus looked to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He ripped a piece of bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine 
And he says, this is the cup that seals my relationship with you through the shedding of my blood. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. So we remember that it's not our efforts, it's not our promises or commitments that make us right with God. Uh, It's the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. It is Christ that has sealed our relationship with God. And that frees us to come to him as we are. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the only requirement, the only requirement for coming to Christ is wanting Jesus. That, that is it. Do you want him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to experience this kind of freedom? Do you want to test us and see, can your soul really be satisfied? Uh, there, you don't have to get it together. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't even have to stop doing the nonsense that you're doing. Do you want Jesus? And if so, come to him. That is the invitation for you. If you're a Christian, let's come with open hands. What is God inviting you to trust him with today? Uh, come forward as an act of faith, trusting him with that. Maybe it's some of you first-time parents and you're terrified. What am I going to do with these babies? Uh, What is it? Let's come forward as an act of trust. Our tradition at Sojourn is to rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. You can use whichever you'd like, and there'll be uh, gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then uh, the Christians in the room, you can come forward, or there'll be stations in the back uh, that you can go to after I pray. Let's pray.